So, so. Guess what I've done all morning. Today, I've spent the whole day. Do we want to know? Uh, I filed a bug report. I did that the other night too. A radar. radar. I filed a a radar. That's it. I radared. You radared a radar. Isn't that what you do? Can you radar a radar? I I think the, isn't the (laughs) verb to radar? Because the, the message that I, I hear from Apple on Twitter is to radar or GTFO. Is that right? Radar or GTFO? You hear that from Apple. Yeah. Yep. And I assume they're telling me to do something, to, to do a radar. So I did. I radared. And yes. It, and it took me all day. It's all I've done today. Really? I radared the other night. Did it take you all night? No. I just like, well, it took me all night to f- try and figure out workarounds for it. But, uh, like I spent most of the night just trying to figure, find workarounds and then it was like, it's not going to happen. So I just typed up some, some stuff and threw it into the. That's cool. Uh, so I was going to ask you guys, if you radar, I was expecting the answer to be no because it's too much effort, but uh, you have. This is the first time I've ever done it. So tell, so tell me what motivated you to. Well, it needs to be fixed because it was a bad problem. Um, so the, ba- the basics of the problem that I was getting was that uh, in progressions, I have, uh, I have a table view controller which uses a uh, fetched results controller. Mm-hmm. to access its data. Uh, and then I have a couple of different versions of that uh, of that table view controller. So there's one for the charts, there's one for favourites, and there's one for sets. And the set list one uh, has its own uh, fetch results controller implementation because it has to get the data a different way. Right, yep. And it, I was finding that if you updated the data... Like if you updated the data that's in the in the store, um, the uh, the delicate methods like uh, you know, controller did change row at index path or whatever, um, they don't they get called on the superclass, not on the on the class that you're actually like for the for the right. set list. So it it always calls the, the top one, but it doesn't actually change anything. Like it doesn't update. So the, the data just doesn't in the table view doesn't ever get updated because it doesn't it calls the wrong thing. There you go. So, um, so you radared. So I radared that. And uh, did you hear back? Have you got? A few, I've I've only heard back with the this has been filed right. email that you get. That's it. Uh, did you also open radar? Do you know about open radar? I didn't open radar because I tried to, and it wouldn't. The page wouldn't load up because it was erroring out for some no, reason. File a radar. I did not file a radar on that. Oh, <laughs> on the fact that open radar. <laughs> Yeah. You could file an open radar. Open radar. So, um, if you don't know about open radar, I'm a huge fan. So, I guess my um, motivation in bringing up this topic is that I find uh, the process of interacting with Apple as a developer when dealing with bugs slightly frustrating at times. It feels a little bit like um, there's an attitude of, we don't want to hear about it unless you've filed a radar. But then even if you have filed a radar... Um, or in in the past, in the limited number of cases where I've I have filed, filed a radar, um, I haven't really had much interaction with Apple about the issue beyond yeah an auto response from an email um, thing saying yep filed, uh, and often it will say filed duplicate here's the bug number of the original bug, which of course I don't have access to, so I can't 
I can't see any information, any correspondence that might have gone on about the original bug saying, yeah, we know it's an issue, we're going to fix it. Right. So it feels a little bit like a black hole. You put effort into putting something into the hole and never really know what's going to go on with it. So, it, you know. Well, I'll know. I'll know if my thing is fixed because I never got around, to, like I never bothered to working work, work around, around it because it was going to mean basically rewriting the entire uh, structure to, yeah. to, to work and I didn't want to do that. I was trying to get it out as quickly so, as possible. So one day you might. So one day it'll just your work, and suddenly it'll just work, and you'll be <laughs> yeah, like, "Wow, be like, wow, they fixed the bug." There you good, go. good. That that that'd be cool. Uh, I, so I don't know if my um, bug is a bug, and that's the other thing I like about Open Radar is um, the idea behind it. So Open Radar is a publicly available sort of duplicate of Apple's radar database, but uh, obviously I don't have access to Apple's radar database, so it's. Um, you know, just maintained by the community of people who contribute to it. And the idea is if you do file a radar and immediately go and copy and paste everything you just put into radar, which is probably sitting in a text document anyway, because the radar web interface is so flaky that you wouldn't trust all the time, you know, spending all the time typing into a form uh, and think that you could just submit it and have it received. Um, so the idea with Open Radar is you then copy and paste all of that into Open Radar and uh, you're with your original radar bug ID. Uh, and it's so that other people can see it. So, uh, you know, in my case, um, what was it? Oh, an issue with uh, collection view. It has a method to return the visible cells, uh, which returns an array of cells. And uh, the order in which those cells appear in the array doesn't actually match the order in which the cells appear in the collection view. So I was writing some code that was um, basically trying to do whenever the collection view scrolled, I wanted my code to know what the first visible cell was so I could display some extra information about that particular cell somewhere else in the app. Um, and I was just assuming that the first item in the array returned by visible cells would be the first visible cell. But it turns out that the order in which the cells are returned by visible cells is, um, is not necessarily the order in which those cells appear in the collection. So I don't, I think that sounds like a bug. Um, so I filed a radar, but you know, I'm not entirely sure. And so what I first, first instinct is to search the existing bug database to see, has anyone else ever encountered this problem? Was it a bug? Was there a workaround? Was there some, just, was it me misunderstanding or the, the API? Um, and so that's what I like about open radar, about the idea of having a, a publicly searchable list of known issues, um, and any correspondence that's happened around those issues so that other developers, um, can learn from the frustrations that have, that others have encountered before them. Um, which is why I did go to the effort of writing up a detailed, uh, description of the bug using Apple's preferred format for bug reports. Created an Xcode project with a reproduction with nothing but a view controller with, a, you know, a dummy data source just so you could reproduce it. Attached that to my bug report. Duplicated it all on open radar. Then I, also put it in my blog, so uh, if anyone wants to have a look at it, I'll put the link in wow. the show notes. You went uh, to a lot more effort than I did. Well, so the effort was I spent most of the day trying to figure out what was going on. And once I found out what was going on, yes, it was a fair bit of effort to write it all up. I guess I did so in the hope that I, I, I encountered the cost of finding this bug and not knowing what was going on and then figuring out what was going on. Um, hopefully, the idea of something like Open Radar is it surely only one person should have to encounter that problem once. And then once it's documented, 
any other developer that looks at the uh, visible sales return from the collection view and goes, what? would do a quick search and go, oh, the order doesn't necessarily match. Okay, I'll sort them. Yeah, so that's the workaround. It's in the blog post. Uh, you, there's another method called um, index path for visible cells or for visible items. Yeah, index paths for visible items, which returns the index, an array containing the index paths for the items that are currently visible in your collection view. It's also in the wrong order. Um, it's only in the wrong order once the collection view has started to reuse cells. So it seems to, to be related to the cell reuse. The, um, okay. Yeah. But so you just get those index paths back and then sort the array by the index paths in it. Uh, so the contents of the whole array is right. It, uh, they are the right index paths for the visible cells. They're just not necessarily in the same order that they are in the collection view. Anyway. Oh, we'll, we'll throw a, a link. You said it was on the blog, yeah? Your yep. blog? Yeah. So we'll throw a link to that in the show notes and people can go and have a bit of a read and uh, try out the demonstration project. Oh, look, I, I seriously don't expect anyone to do that. In but the, um, If they feel the need to. In the uh, next episode of the show, I'm, sur I'm sure we'll have some follow-up as Apple fixes the bug and, and <laughs> yeah. closes that radar. Yeah. Look, uh, well, maybe. So uh, I'd be interested in hearing not so much about this particular bug, but about other people's thoughts about this the whole process of filing radars and whether or not you hear anything back and do you think that it's worth the effort it takes to to file bugs um, or have you given up on the process or how's your what's your experience been has anyone filed radars and had a really great response and uh, had their issues resolved so I'm, I have to say in the past I have had a great response with paid technical support requests so it's worth mentioning that as a member of Apple's developer program your membership entitles you to a certain number of paid developer support requests per year. I think you get two per year, and then after that, you have to actually pay for them. Um, and you, I, every time I've used one, I've had a response. Uh, and so what I've done in the past is filed a radar and then used a paid technical support request to say, I just filed this radar. Here's a copy of it. Here's the link. Um, is this a bug or am I misunderstanding any something? Is there a known workaround? And um, a couple of times I've had responses saying, yeah, it's a bug. We're working on it. Uh, here's a workaround. Indeed, excellent. Well, follow up. Oh yeah, let's let's, uh, let's let's talk uh, cover some of the follow up off. So I got a tweet this week, uh, and I'm I'm going to completely just massacre this name. It's it's a, a mess of consonants. Krizistov Zablocki. I think that's right. If I made that, if I said that wrong, then I'm very very sorry. I got a a tweet from him this week. He is. Uh, he is the man behind um, Foldify, apparently. And he sent me a a link to a blog post he wrote uh, covering off some of the stuff that I talked about last week, which is the uh, which was the uh, doing uh, build different builds for, for each different uh, uh, configuration that you have, you know, d debug, uh, ad hoc, and uh, release. And uh, he linked me to a blog post where he uh, goes over how to overlay, like, version information on your icon. So that you can have that uh, actually displayed on the icon, uh, you know, with with uh, with the full build number and the you know the the short build number and all that sort of stuff, if if you want to, uh, and a little hash for the for the commit, I guess, and the the, the git commit. So uh, we'll throw that. I'll throw a link to that in the show notes because uh, it's actually looks really uh, useful because you can see without having to you know delve into the app and go and look for it you can figure out which which version uh, your beta testers are using uh, they can just look at the icon to find that out 
uh, or you know, if you need to, if you need to take a look at it, you can uh, see that on your on yourself. So. Yeah, that looks it looks really cool. And I think um, Foldify is probably the most awesome iPad app I've used. Um, yeah. If you haven't used it, it's uh, an app that lets you um, design little sort of paped templates for folded paper creations. Yeah. Um, and I've spent hours uh, decorating creations. Uh, I made my kid a um, a version of his grandfather and grandmother. Uh, Good. Custom drawn. It was quite hilarious. Didn't look anything like them. But he, I think he kind of recognized it, maybe. Anyway, I enjoyed it. Um, I like I like apps generally that where the app lets you do stuff in the real world too. Um, so this is one where you can actually having use the app and you can print a, a physical thing you can then fold up and play with. Uh, whereas you know, just generally apps that have some impact on the physical world, I think, are kind of fun. Indeed. Yeah. So uh, you have follow up as well. I do have some fu too. Indeed. Uh, you may recall some time ago we were discussing storyboards. We were. I was sharing my love for all things storyboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so apparently that means I'm not a top-tier developer. Really? Uh, well, look, I'm not sure that I am, or I'm not sure that I thought that I was, but I can now categorically tell you that it means that I am not, at least according to Marco Armand. Ah. On his, um, so the good news is one of my favourite um, podcasters is back on the air with a technical podcast, a podcast about software development and other technical things. Uh I think um, after Marco ended the Build and Analyze and John Syracuse finished Hypercritical towards the end of last year, uh, they were both off the air, and now they've uh, this year launched a podcast about cars with with another guy. Uh, I'm not particularly interested in cars, so I haven't been listening to it. Um, but apparently they, they couldn't help but start to have conversations about technology at the end of every recording about cars. And so they decided to turn those... Um, those conversations into a new podcast called the I think it's called the Accidental Tech Podcast. That's what it's called. Yep, we'll put the links in the show notes. Um, and so I've started listening to that, and it's awesome. I'm so glad to hear uh, John Syracuse back on the air. Um, but not so glad to hear your nemesis. He's not Marco. Nemesis, nemesis at all. I'm glad to hear Marco <laughs> on back on the air too. Um, however, I was a little bit affronted by Marco's um, take on storyboards in the most recent episode. Uh, he, so, so Marco had a, a strong opinion about something, right? Uh, yes. Does that surprise? Mm. I think it, yes. Um, and his opinion was, if I'm summarizing it correctly, that uh, storyboards are good for newbies or rapidly prototyping. But uh, if you're a, if you're a serious dev, they're they're no good at all. And um, I disagree. I think that they are good for newbies and for rapid prototyping. But I also still think they've got their place, even when you end up having a storyboard that's just a series of empty white squares. I guess. His point is valid in that they become some of their advantages become less useful, like the fact that you can visually see what's going on within a view. If you're starting to do more custom drawing, then you can't see that, and, and the, that advantage dissipates. But I still think there are enough advantages, for me at least, to continue using them, even though my storyboard might end up becoming just a series of white boxes that are connected together. Because just having that um, that visual layout of the kind of different parts of my app, um, even if each part I can't actually see much detail in, uh, I find useful. And I also find things like UI view controller containment. Um, in storyboards, you can do it just by dragging a container view onto a storyboard. Uh, whereas in codes, you know, several lines of code, and you've got to remember a quite weird API for 
knowing when to take responsibility for letting the child and parent view controllers know when you've added or removed them from each other, things like that. So yeah. anyway, that was my follow-up. Uh, storyboards, according to some, are only for newbies. Um, I will defend them to the death. Maybe so not. disregard our previous podcast. Um, yep. Don't just, use just everybody ignore episode two. I love storyboards. Or listen to both episode two and the most recent episode of the Accidental Tech Podcast and decide for yourself. Indeed. I uh, To weigh in on that, I have been uh, continuing my development of, quote, the comic app, end quote. Uh, and I still haven't used storyboards any further than what I uh, talked about, I think, last week, uh, which is to say that the I've got you know tabs which are being loaded from a storyboard and that's it. And uh, I'm not going to. I like. I, I'm not the sort of person who's like, "Oh, you're wrong for using storyboards." But I, I don't think storyboards are for me. I've, I've, uh, I've had more problems with them with trying to trying to uh, get around them than I've. Uh, and I think it's just because you know I've, I, I, I develop everything in code. Yeah. Look, I think that's completely fair enough. I, I don't want to be the sort of person that tries to shove them down everyone's throat either. I think uh, whatever works for you is good. Um, lately, I've had some fights with storyboards as well as I've started to use some more auto layout. Um, I think that's a topic for another show. I think I've seen the tweets for those. (laughs) Auto layout and storyboards, I don't think play very well together. Right. Um, In fact, I think each put, uh, who was it? Someone at maybe NS conference. I can't keep up with it. I tweeted that um, storyboards are enough to put you off of auto layout and auto layouts enough to put you off of storyboards. So if you're using them together, then they might, turn you off of the other technology that you've just started using. Indeed. I knew, I don't really use either of them, except for the aforementioned storyboards. Well, we can talk about auto layout another day. That's a whole episode, I think. And Indeed. one in which I'd like to get someone else's point of view too, someone who's maybe a, a, an auto layout veteran. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Is there such a thing as an auto layout veteran? Yeah, well, so it's been in the desktop API for a while. Oh, it has? Yeah. So uh, people that may, might do more desktop programming may have, uh, have learnt to defeat it, perhaps. Or at least learn to understand it, maybe. Indeed. So I think that's all the FU. Follow up. That's all the FU I've got. That's all I got. Have you got anything? No FU. Excellent. I've got a question for you, Caleb. Shoot. So you're about to launch a new a new app. I am. Please tell. It is uh, Cute Fruit. It is a app for pregnant women. Um, it's another one of those... Um, You've probably seen them before, maybe on Facebook. You got some pregnant friends, they uh, tweet the, uh, or they'll uh, post the uh, picture of a piece of fruit and say, my baby's about this size. Um, I've never seen that, but okay. You don't have enough American friends. Yeah, you got to have friends at a certain period in their lives. Oh, don't don't you worry. I I have a lot of uh, church friends and they're all either getting married at the moment or having babies. So I, there's plenty of people around me that are having babies. They're just not which, com- not comparing them to and fruit. And I've, I've I've never seen anybody compare it to fruit. This is this is the first time that so I've ever heard of this. Maybe phenom- that's just phenomenon. because they haven't got cute fruit yet. That's that's true. But I did I did reblog your uh your link to uh, the other day to the to the uh, trailer. It's about to uh, take the world by storm. I think it will. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So stay tuned. So congratulations on being about to launch. And um, I guess the questions I had is I'd I'd really like to get your take on you know, what's involved in launching a new product in terms of getting the word out, um, managing that process of making sure the product's ready in time for 
for your announcements and launches and how do you, how do you get the word out? What have you found works in the past? What's your approach? Yeah, I guess I haven't really had an approach in the past. I sort of submit the app, wait for it to come out, release it, and then just email. Wait, wait for the money to come in. Email as many people as I can and say, hey, check out my app. Um, I'm trying to be a little bit more deliberate about it this time. Um, I got a set date for it to come out. I'm sending emails to as many, as much press as I can. I got the press kit. I made a video. Yeah, and, I saw uh, that. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's really video. good. It's okay. I, I've had success with videos in the past. I think, I think a video is pretty essential to have an app these days. Yeah. So yeah. I, I've seen quite a few of them. Um, yours amongst them. Uh, and I think that. Yeah, to me, it makes such a big difference, you know, b between just having a screencast of the app or some static screenshots of the app screen or a screencast of the app's app running to seeing actual motion video of a person interacting with the app. Just, um, I don't know, maybe it's a psychological thing or maybe it's me taking a while to get used to how technology is evolving. But when I see that, it immediately seems so much more slick and professional and expensive. It's like, this is an app coming from people who can produce actual video, you know, as if yeah. once upon a time that that meant that you were a film studio or you were a, a big, serious organization. And I, I realize that technology is making it easier. No, it just means that you have an iPhone. Well, you know, you should, this, <laughs> you know, this, uh, this video of Caleb's, uh, I think, what did you shoot on? It was certainly not just an iPhone. Was it? Was uh, a, no, 5D. Uh, right. Yeah. Cause it DSLR. looks, it looks awesome. Yeah. So. So if you watch the video, there's, there's not much to it. I mean, there's not much to the app itself. The, it's kind of unnecessary to have a video. Uh, I don't think it's going to, at least I hope a lot of, I don't think a lot of people will see the video and download the app. What I think is necessary for having a video, or the reason you need to have a video is because um, when, you, when you press, that's going to cover your app. A video is a really nice thing that they can embed in their blog post or something like that. They like that, and so I think you almost need to have a video just to get that initial press coverage if you want to get it. I'm hoping that my customers won't be coming directly from the video, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping they'll come from the App Store. Right. Um, and won't have to see the video before they download the app. But that being said, uh, you'll put the video into the into the website for the uh, for the app, I yeah. assume. So hopefully people will actually watch the video and then buy the app as opposed to watch the video and not buy the app. I guess. But I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping people will just buy the app. And I guess, I guess with this one, I should point out it's a free app. So I'm, I'm going for numbers here. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. I'll be, be really interesting to hear how it all goes. And, um, yeah, I think this process, the app store has changed a lot since its early days. Um, so. Although my current focus is doing client work, um, I do have a couple of apps in the store from when I you know, first got a, a developer account and just wanted to get something in there. I've actually pulled a couple of my early, early apps because I'm a bit embarrassed about them and, and I didn't want to just leave them there um, because they were trivially simple and, and you know, kind of uninteresting. But I still remember the first app I did... Um, I think it only took an hour or two to write. It was a uh, a size converter, so it converted um, ring and shoe sizes. So if you were shopping for a ring for jewelry uh, or shoes, and you were shopping on the internet, and the sizes were in a 
unit that you are not familiar with, like a US sizes or UK sizes or Australian sizes, uh, you could use this app to convert from one to the other. Uh, so it was literally a um, like a pick, you know, number picker controller thing. I can't even remember what the control is called now. Uh, a picker controller. Yeah, it's um, just a picker, I think. With like four static arrays behind it to, to map different units to other units. Uh, I think it took me like an hour or two to write and um, a day to figure out how to do the code signing, app store submission, iTunes Connect stuff. <laughs> but it um, took a day. That's pretty good for your first time. Yeah, yeah. And it was, and so I had it in the store maybe on launch. I don't know, like almost right early on. And it was 99 cents. Um, and I sold, I sold like, I don't know, certainly enough copies to pay for the hour or so that I spent on it. Uh, so the app store there was a, there was a time wasn't there where you could just write an app put it in the app store and people would find it yeah exactly that and that was the thing that was what that was what it was like at the beginning if you had an app in the store people would buy it kind of you know there were so few um whereas now there are so many that um i won't mention which client it is but a client that i've done some work for recently accidentally released an app that i wrote for them uh before they were ready to tell the world about it um and rather than pull it, they've just left it there, feeling safe in the knowledge that no one's going to find it unless they do other marketing activities outside of the App Store. Uh, and as far as I can tell, that has been the case. No, And there's maybe a couple of people have downloaded it, but it certainly hasn't been widely known about. Um, and that's kind of I, that kind of surprised me a bit because um, I guess I realise now that there's so many apps in the App Store. Um, but I hadn't realised that it's almost got to the point where where really um, having an app in the store is kind of not even, it's not that it's not enough, it's it's basically nothing. Like unless you do at least something other than just have the app in the store, uh, no one's going to know about it because I guess the way the store works is the only place people find apps is on, there's um like new or something that's... The, the new and noteworthy? Well, no, not new and noteworthy. There's just because that's new and noteworthy is an ed- editorial pick that Apple's right. got to select it. There is a category. I think you can browse by category. Yep. And within each category on the desktop app version of the App Store, you can um, just browse by release date. And so you just see a page at a time. And page one of the apps will release kind of today. And by tomorrow, you're on page two already. And then by next week, you're on page 50. Um, and so I suppose that's one way people would find an app. And I guess the other way is search, right? If they search for something and search is so broken. Like there's so much. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't know how it works. There's, cause you have keywords and stuff, but like that, but I don't, I don't think they're included in your search. I don't even know what oh, the no, point of I those think are. they are. Really? So one, one of the apps I've still got in there is a kids app called Mousefish. Uh, it's the title of, yep. of the app. If you search for Mousefish, you'll find a, another app that is the identical idea, but is completely different by. Obviously, a competitor. Yep. Um, so they've obviously put my app's title as one of their keywords. Into the keywords. Okay. Um, I have a few of those as well. Yeah. And so search is kind of like so badly manipulated. And, um, you know, when even when I'm just genuinely trying to find an app for a particular thing, I find search so hard because you just get results back. And then it's hard to differentiate to know much about one result to the next. You know, um, you just get a whole heap of apps, some of which are relevant. Some so I think these yeah. days the way people are discovering apps is kind of largely outside the app store. It's through, I mean, other than the ones Apple, Apple features, so new and noteworthy and the editorial categorizations, I think people do discover apps through. But other than that, I think it's through articles on other websites, 
uh, Twitter, recommendations from friends, ads. I don't know. I don't really know. I just know, I've kind of got to the point where I understand the problem. Uh, it seems harder to get people to know about apps, but I've got no idea what the solution is. I don't think anybody knows. It's one of those things where, you know, every now and then somebody will release some form of solution to the problem of how did, you know, how am I getting, uh, how are people buying my app? Like, how are they finding me? And, uh, like on, like similar to what we talked about last week with the advertising identifier, uh, you know, people are trying to find ways to track between, uh, between apps people are trying to find ways of you know tracking their people's web usage and that sort of stuff uh there's been at least a couple of different uh solutions out there that have uh have been just kind of come into the spotlight and then and then vanished uh because nobody really uses them i guess Mm. um but it's it's one of those things where we because we don't get any sort of information from apple as to uh how to you know how would did somebody come to this, like, to, to my app on the app store and how did they find it and how did they buy it? Like, it's, it's a big, it's a big problem. And, mm. uh, at, at this point in time, I don't think there's a real solution out there. And maybe, and maybe that makes sense. I think that, um, prior to the app store, the kind of, um, world that I was used to was one in which, um, the, the, Software and services and products that got noticed were the ones released by sort of big budget um, organizations that, that had could afford a big marketing budget around things. Uh, and then the app store sort of disrupted that for a while, that it made it, it was a kind of leveler that uh, there was suddenly there was an environment where the price of entry was $99 and then you could put, submit your product or app to a, to a huge audience. Yep. Um, and you were on the same even footing as, as the big, big names. Um, whereas I think now if you look at the top grossing apps, um, in the app store, they're pretty much all released by sort of large studios. There's a few indies that still make the cut, but, um, most of them are from sort of the, the big name organizations like the electronic arts or things like that. Um, and I think part of that is obviously the budget they can put into producing the apps. I mean, they're producing quality stuff, but I don't think that's all. I think there's a whole heap of really quality apps out there that aren't kind of aren't making it into that top grossing list. And I think that comes down to things like the marketing budget and the um, the activities that happen outside the app store to get people to learn about it. Yeah, apps. yeah. And brand, like brand recognition mm. uh, and stuff like that. Like, you know, people people buy Scrabble and Words with Friends because they know the name. But if, you know, somebody comes up with a whole different Scrabble uh, ripoff, then people aren't necessarily going to be looking for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's interesting. But as, I, I think as well, another thing is, you know, the social aspect because, uh, it, you know, it's been said that word of mouth is the best advertising. So, you know, and so, so you know, social media plays into that as well. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the importance of having, you know, having people you know that use the app, that enjoy the app, that tell people or other people are about the app is, is, uh, is a huge factor as well. Because that's something I that's how things like Words with Friends, you know, that, that's how they, uh, you know, got started, at least. Um, yeah, I think that's got a huge sort of network effect in that in order to really enjoy the game, you need to get your friends to use it too. Indeed. So it's not just, um, it's, it's not just that you tell them about it because you like it. It's you tell them about it because you want them to play it so you can play with them. Right. So that you can enjoy it more. So right. A little bit selfishness in it there as well. And that, you know, until, and I had the same thing with uh, Letterpress. I think both of you, I 
played several games of. Yep. Yep. Until you, you, you kept beating me. I I, I pretty much ended up beating everybody that I played. It was, the best it, was it was a struggle. I've I've I smurfed it at least a couple of times. Yeah, no, I think I I was the victim of smurfings and then gave up. But I mean that that'd Fair be enough. interesting to hear about how that game's going post that launch kind of craze or, um, you know that that was a game where I think amongst you know the community we're familiar with of, of other developers it was really well adopted, um, and I certainly invited you know I invited my dad to play with me because I knew he enjoyed Words with Friends and I thought he'd enjoy another word game. Um, and I much prefer letterpress to words with friends. So yeah. I was trying to get people I know to. And I, I don't know. I think he found the game center whole experience of like signing up for a game center account and inviting and accepting an invitation to play like too difficult compared to words with friends. Um, I had the opposite experience because I have aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents playing letterpress. Oh, fantastic. This was at your invitation or they found it independent? Uh, I found it independent. It oh, was wow. the first time that that's really happened. Um, I, I was like you. I thought this was a, a popular game within the developer community. Huge. But I didn't think it would get outside of it. But, it sounds uh, like it has. First time my uncle sent me a friend request. I was a bit surprised. Yeah. I think I got a lot of people into uh, Game Center. Mm, yeah, definitely. So this week on Mobile Couch, we're starting a new thing where we interview a developer uh, and for that, uh, this first week, we have Russell from Shifty Jelly. Thanks for joining us on the mobile couch, Russell. No worries. I haven't seen the couch, though. Where is it? Does that sort of roll in or what? There is, in fact, no couch. There is, in fact, no couch in here. We're all on stools, we'll and secret. they're not particularly Shh, comfortable. You're breaking the whole magic of, of radio, of podcasting. Well, Just, I, Jake, Jake is sitting on the back of the couch. Jelly's sitting on the uh, arm of the couch, and I'm laying down on it. I'm pretty sure you're on the back and he's laying down. Yeah, if you go to the website, mobilecouch.co, yeah. there's uh, some beautiful cover art where you can see the couch. And, in fact, I think you've seen the cover art before. Oh, yeah. Thank mm. you. Indeed, I have. Thank you Indeed. very much. So, yeah, thanks for that. I feel I feel very proud because that's my illustration. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you for joining us. Uh, I think the what prompted us to invite you on was in fact a tweet of yours suggesting that we should invent in, interview other devs to ask them how they do their thing yes um, but I, I do believe I, I volunteered someone else who wasn't me oh did, did you and we'll, we'll, I, i'm extremely disappointed that you started with me because that's sorry. Like for a very interesting <laughs> podcast for me sorry i completely misunderstood my mistake <laughs> we've uh, we'll, we'll we'll work that out We'll get we'll get them. Yeah, on. You have to promise me you're going to get other developers on board because the whole point we of that will. tweet was I want to know how other people build stuff. Yeah, well, so okay. do I. I want to know how other people build stuff too. So having you on board will address that issue for me. Yeah, just not for me. And yeah, it's all okay. about me. So yeah, okay. Well, we'll, we'll we'll do someone else next time. Um, but yeah, so thank you for joining us. Uh, tell tell me how how do you build stuff? Uh, in Xcode. So <laughs> but, um, what, that that what, what actually specifically do you want to know? Well, that's actually a good starting point. You do use Xcode. It's not app, app, you haven't converted to app code yet. No, I've tried out app code. I mean, I I don't know. I converted from tools like Eclipse and NetBeans and and horrible horrible tools like that. So when when you come from one of those to Xcode, it just I don't know. It's a breath of fresh air, and I I don't really want to leave. See, it's funny you should say that. I also made the move from Eclipse to Xcode. Um, it's doing Java programming in Eclipse. Uh, Java web objects. I don't know if you're familiar. It's oh God! Of, yes, it's the it's the um, I don't know the long forgotten sibling of Coco. Uh, yes, for the web. 
still exists, I think, maybe. Anyway, uh, and I actually missed some stuff about Eclipse. Really? Yeah, like... Um, did you miss the incredibly long loading times, the uh, the fact you have to refresh your files every time you change something on the file system? Not... They have not to, you have to clean your project every five minutes? Not those particular uh, features, no. <laughs> uh, Organise imports, that's kind of nice. Yeah, that is quite nice. Um, things like the refactoring support, being able to highlight a... Um, a variable or a method and move it around or encapsulate it. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember what else. Quick rename where you could uh, highlight a variable or name somewhere in your code and hit, I think it was Apple 2R, and then type a new name and it would rename that variable everywhere within scope. Yeah, yeah I know the ones. I mean, to, to be fair to Eclipse, there is a lot of cool functions in there. It's just, I don't know, it just feels like a bloated sort of piece of software. Yeah have that feel about it too. So uh, I am enjoying Xcode as well, but Xcode certainly uh, is your choice. Yes. So, I mean, I don't know what you want to get out of this. Like my hope is that you would interview some other developers and find out, I guess, you know, what do they use for their database stuff? Do they use Interface Builder? You know, how do they generally put together their projects? In, in the case of the more, I guess, recent stuff I've done. Yeah, that, um, I mean, so, so that exact set of questions is what I was hoping you could share with us. Like, Particularly one of the, the things that vexes me every time I face this issue um, is the kind of structuring your project or structuring your code or figuring out which part of your app takes responsibility for which sort of things in terms of, you know, interacting with a, a data source, be it a network-based data source or um, something local to your app, and then yep. making that data available to your view controllers, you know, um, how do you approach that sort of thing? Do you, do you have a lot going on in your app delegate or do you have uh, singleton classes you write for interacting with those sorts of things or does your view controller itself, um, you know, take responsibility for getting all the data that that view controller needs? No. So generally the way the way I've sort of structured most of the things I work on is um, uh, I use generally core data for the, the database layer. Mm-hmm. And I've more recently started using something called Magical Record that kind of sits on top of that and kind of gives you some common methods and, I guess, ways of getting the data in and out. But in terms of – because, I mean, all of our apps have servers, so generally I try to separate the server stuff as far away from everything else as I can. Yep. So generally it's very boring, but there's a class called Server Manager, and that has pretty much every method you could hope to to basically call on the server. And that, you know, you, you give it stuff you want to send. It gives you stuff back sort of – structured and all parsed out and that kind of thing so it's it's not so much the view controller sort of interacting with the server or the data layer it's more it just says you know hey i'd like this bit of data when you have this bit of data you know call me back here you know give it to me in this format and then kind of work with it from there yeah i think i take a similar approach i I tend to call mine service controllers so i'll have like a and i might have one per service endpoint or one per sort of api yeah like lately i've started using um AF networking and tend to subclass their um, HTTP client. Yeah, um, I've used that fairly heavily as well. It's a great framework. Yeah, it is really nice. I like the fact that it. Um, I, I, when I first started using it, it kind of highlighted some issues on in my APIs. Like, um, it does a lot where it uses the HTTP. I guess it's RESTful, right? It uses the HTTP status codes to infer whether something's successful or an error. Um, it uses the content type to determine what it should do with the response. So um, I think I ran into some issues early on where I was uh, using it with a, a 
API that was serving up JSON, but it didn't have the right content type. So, um, you know, getting AF networking to actually parse it when it came back was, you know, a little bit of fiddling around. Um, but since I figured that out and I'm now, I guess, doing more of the right thing on the server side, um, I found it quite, quite easy to use. Um, yeah, definitely. I guess we have the advantage that in all our apps, we control both ends as well. So we're not calling sort of third party services. It's generally our own servers that are sort of passing data back. Yeah. So what do you, um, what do you do that takes advantage of that fact? Do you do anything particularly weird on the client and server? Like, do you just pass back binary data at all? Or do you still use them? Um... <laughs> yeah, we, we did in the early days. So in the very first version of Pocket Weather, we had like a stupid thing, but we had like a hash delimited format that basically didn't have any of the, the actual variable names in it. It was just the raw data. We Later on, we tried something called Message Pack. I don't know if you've seen that. No. What's Message Pack? It's basically like JSON, but a lot more when it actually transmits over the wire. It's a lot sort of tighter and it's not quite binary, but it's, it's sort of almost there. But And it's meant to be a lot faster to build and unpack as well. Yeah, but cool. in the end, I don't know, we've just used JSON for all our recent stuff because, you know, once you gzip it, it's not that big. And yeah, there's a little bit of a penalty for going to and from JSON, but it's not anything that generally sort of bothers. I mean, we're not writing sort of, you know, real-time mission-critical sort of apps that have to respond yeah. within 100 milliseconds or whatever. So, yeah, we've just basically been using JSON for all the recent stuff. It's just, it's obvious. Like, you open the JSON, you can tell exactly what's in there. It's fairly easy to debug it. There's no sort of weirdness to it. And it's it's universally supported by pretty much every, you know, library that exists. So Right, yeah, of course. I suppose one of the advantages you have in working on both ends is designing your APIs so that the um, you're providing, I guess, content and data in the right granularity for your client app. You know, if you're working with an existing API, sometimes you end up having to make more calls than might be necessary or um, have to get a larger response than you really need and pull the little bit that you need out of it. Whereas I suppose you've got the advantage of designing your services to, to sort of serve up exactly what you need when you need it. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, that makes a huge difference when you've got control over both ends that, you know, you know in this particular bit of your app, you need this kind of data, but you don't need sort of these other things that link to it. So you can choose exactly what you kind of do and don't pass back. I'm trying yeah. to think what else. In in terms of, um, I mean, testing and deployment, we, we use Hockey app, which I think you guys are familiar with. I think you talked about that in the previous podcast already. Yeah, I think yeah we did. But that thing's awesome. We actually use it for um, live crash reporting as well. So we ship that in our production apps, and every time the app crashes for somebody, that next time they open it, it actually sends us that report. Oh, cool. So I was wondering how well it scales in terms of, you know, a lot of these tools are, are built around beta testing um, yeah. where obviously you're limited by the number of provisioning profile slots you've got um, or the number of testers you can find if you're doing enterprise apps. Um, but so I kind of have this question of how well it scales to sort of, you know, a live user base. And you've certainly obviously got plenty of users with your apps. Um, do you find that it works fine, that they, you know, handles the sort of number yeah. of crash reports you get? Not that I'm suggesting you've got lots and lots of crash reports. <laughs> well, we do. In some of the very early versions of our apps, we got well over thirty or 40,000, I think, oh, wow. reports. Oh. But it, it's actually cool because as you release updates, you can see that kind of dramatically drop off. And especially in the world of Android, which I know you guys aren't really about, but the hockey does Sorry, that side of things. Sorry, the world of – what was that? So, uh, so a word starting with A. <laughs> and, yeah, sorry. So what now? Just yeah, I'm not going to start the platform wars here, but we're, we're across <laughs> both. And hockey does both, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, it, it's it's cool in that both, you know, Apple, I don't know if you guys use the Apple crash reporting, but it tends to be, 
hit and miss and you get stuff sort of days late and it's i don't know it's it's a pain to have to try and um decode all that whereas hockey has a thing they have a, a thing i just hook into the end of my build process so when i do a build an archive you know if i set the right parameters that'll actually upload the app to hockey it'll upload the god what's that file called dsim yep and then hockey will actually take care of symbolicating all the crash reports as well so you don't have to deal with any of that stuff manually it's yeah it's nice it's nice cool Oh, well, I might have to start using it in uh, in production stuff as well. I've kind of got it set up as so only my ad hoc build process includes the hockey um, stuff. So I'm using it both for letting beta testers know about updates and for getting crash reports from beta versions. But I remove it from the actual App Store build. But maybe I should leave it in for um. Yeah, so so all you need to do is bit. in your App Store build, you set up a thing that basically turns off the hockey updates thing because obviously you don't want it checking for updates. And then I think mm. you give it your live app ID instead of the like the test one, and then they just go to two different places. Yeah, cool. Oh, I might have to might have to give that a go. So, um, yeah, I was going to ask a bit more about. Um, you mentioned that you you most of your apps deal with network services, but you still use Core Data um, as a a local data store. How do you manage the process of kind of uh, caching content? And I mean, do you use Core Data so that the apps can work offline, um, or is it mainly just for performance or for the for the ease of of programming in terms of dealing with um, view controllers and stuff, getting their content from a local store. And how do you um, manage that process of on an app launch or relaunch, um, contacting the network, figuring out what's new, and then modifying the local store with, I guess, the delta or you know making it consistent with the network state? Yeah, so I, I guess I use core data for all those reasons. Like one is obviously offline storage. Two is, I mean, I could hand code SQLite if I wanted to, like I've done that sort of thing in the past, but... If you know what you're doing with core data, and that's a pretty big if, but if you do know what you're doing, it's it's very powerful and it just takes, I don't know, it takes a lot of sort of monkey coding out of the equation, especially if you use something like Magical Records. So I guess what a lot of our apps do is there's the, the data store that represents what the app is displaying is actually stored in core data. We do refresh that off the network from time to time, depending on you know, different things that trigger it. And I'm not sure if this is the right thing to do, but I tend to keep my entire app up to date using um, notifications. All right. So so say, for example, so, Pocket Weather, which is one of your apps that I enjoy using the most. Yeah. Uh, several times a day, I'll launch it just to make sure I know what the current weather is and how it's likely to change throughout the day. So say I've, uh, I haven't launched it yet today and I, and I launch it, um, it obviously has to hit the network to find out the latest forecast for today. And then how do you um how you then get a use the NS notification center to propagate to sort of tell the rest of the app that you've got some new data? Um, yeah, so what what I tend to do in a lot of our apps, and and I guess this is part of the reason I wanted you guys to ask other people because I have no idea if this is the best way to do it or not. But what happens is in, in Pocket Weather, for example, it you launch the app, it realizes it's been you know more than a certain amount of time since it last refreshes. So in the background, it actually goes and kicks off a, a refresh. In the meantime, you're kind of looking at that sort of cache data and then when the background uh, refresh process is finished and it's actually put all the the data back into core data it just fires a notification and i do them sort of fairly granular so in this case it's the notification is called weather refreshed and then any any bit of ui that that needs to know about hey the weather's changed actually subscribes to that notification so if, if i have a particular you know view controller that's showing you the you know let's say the the six day forecast or whatever mm -hmm. and that when that's displayed on screen, that registers for that notification, and if it gets it, it'll basically just update itself. So it'll go back to core data and just quickly, you know, pull the latest data up there and 
and redo the UI. So that's right, and so the notification really is just a is just a message to say that there's new content. Go and go and check your sources again, and then it yeah, uses the it, same code to access the core its core data store to sort of say what what have yeah, you got. Yeah, but from I, I like to do it at a fairly granular level. So for example, in Pocket Casts, you know, when you hit play, when you hit pause, when all these various events happen, I fire all those off as notifications as well. And the thing I like about that is you don't have to define which bit of your you know app those are going to. Like basically, something has happened. And if any, anything in your whole entire, you know, user interface or anywhere else wants to know if that something has happened or not, it can just subscribe to that one particular notification. So there might be, you know, one notification for I've got to the end of a podcast or another modification, uh, sorry, notification for I've changed something about a particular podcast episode. Yep. And it, I, I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but I kind of take it to that level. So it, it kind of makes putting the whole user interface together really easily because you don't have to worry about, you know, what if this bit of data changes or what if something changes here? You can just subscribe to those notifications and when you see that come through, then you can update yourself. Yeah, no, it's, it sounds like a really good approach. Um, I certainly am a fan of notifications, but I kind of have sometimes a bit of a love-hate relationship with them in the sense that um, one of the things I love about them is just what you've described so that you can use them as a mechanism for informing different parts of your app and different views and things about things that have changed that might be of interest. Um, but the th- one of the things I struggle with is the indirectness that sometimes debugging or trying to read through the code, um, the flow of control is a little bit unclear because, you know, um, I can't just sort of read, click through a, um, or read through each line of code to see where the control is going to go because you don't really know when a notification is going to be triggered. But I suppose that's, that kind of asynchronous nature is really what client server apps are like, right? There's always going to be stuff happening that you don't really know when it's going to happen. Um, and when it does, you want a whole heap of changes to happen as a result of it. Yeah, I guess over time I've started building apps pretty much everywhere, like asynchronously, without having that sort of direct direct flow. Yeah. It just, I mean, it's harder to start off with, but it, it makes your life easier in the long run if if you don't have to have a massive thread of execution where you know you start at point A and then you end up at point B and then you have to process something C and then D. If you can kind of unchain that stuff, it it can sometimes make things easier. Yeah, so what you're telling me is I just need to suck it up and get used to it. I think I think you're right. <laughs> no, I, I agree. It, doesn't, it makes it harder to debug. Yeah, cool. Okay. Uh, well, so um, I don't know. What, what are the sort of other things that you would be hoping to hear about from, from guests on this show? So I, I guess the other big topic is user interfaces. So, for example, I, I don't use storyboards. I know you guys have, have chatted about that. But I do use Interface Builder as pretty much the starting point of every kind of view or so you, or, so you use zibs, zibs or nibs or whatever you want to call them, single views in Interface Builder? Yeah, I, I don't try to get too fancy in there, so I don't use any of the auto layout stuff. I tend to stick to the iOS 5, whatever it was called before, auto layout. And even then, if, if the view rotates or something like that, I tend to do a lot of stuff manually in code. So I just use it as a starting point. Like for some screens, yeah. it's just great to throw all your different controls on there to to set them with all the, the different things they need and then just to reference those things in your code and, and kind of mess with them afterwards as, as different things happen. Look, I'm really, so, I mean, I'm kind of surprised to hear that you use Interface Builder at all, given that I've seen how sort of bespoke a lot of your UIs look, like they're beautifully designed and um, the interactions are, are really nice. Um, I kind of assumed that there was just reams and reams of custom code, that there wasn't really anything that would have been a, a standard control in Interface Builder. No, most of it is in Interface Builder. I mean, some of it might not look like it, it does on screen. But yep. I mean, things like the the little card things that, that you look at in Pocket Weather, like they're all interface builder files and they all kind of extend from, you know, a common parent class that does some things that, that cards are meant to do. 
But mm-hmm. a lot of the actual design of the cards is actually, yeah, just an interface builder itself. And do you find that you're mainly subclassing UI view controller um, or you're doing UI view subclasses? I, I how do you do decide when to do so each? Generally, if if I'm trying to lay out a screen, that's that's like a UI view controller. But if there's if there's maybe one particular view that's maybe, I don't know, common to a few things, like in Pocket Cast, for example, there's a there's a view that just does the the progress with the time on each side. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the right thing to do or not, but because it's quite small, I tend to just do that as a UI view, and that kind of manages itself. Basically, I guess it's almost a controller; it's somewhere in between. But yeah. small stuff like that, I tend to just do as a as a UI view, and and bigger stuff sort of turns into its own control. Yeah, cool. And I, so I only recently said- learned as well. I didn't never knew this, and probably you guys are going to laugh, but um, I think last year someone taught me that a view, the relationship between a view and a controller, is is a really simple thing. Like the you can kind of use one without the other if that makes sense yeah i think i think that makes sense so for example if you wanted to grab the view from a view controller and use it somewhere else you actually can you just need to you know handle all the view will appear and view will disappear and all that sort of logic but you you can drop your view controllers like in different places through your app i I never had any idea you could do that yeah yeah no i've started doing that a fair bit too and i think it got formalized in ios 5 with view controller containment yeah. Where there's yeah some sort of explicit ways of within the view controller itself telling it when you've moved its view to another view controller, uh, and vice versa. Um, so with just a simple little view like that, um, that one that's got the current progress and the time lapsed and time remaining. Um, do you, do you use custom drawing code like a override draw rect, or is the UI view subclass basically uh all setting itself up in um in view did load or Hang on, that's a view controller method, isn't it? In load view, um, and then using notifications to update the the content. Yes. So generally, you only subscribe to notifications in in sort of view controllers, not not views themselves. But yeah, uh, yeah. Basically, in I reckon ninety percent of of everything I've done, it's it's always using the common controls. So things like labels, you know, text views, buttons, whatever, all yep. either laid out you know, an interface builder or hand-coded in, in load view, I very rarely drop down to draw rect unless there's some yeah. sort of real need to, you know, either draw something like a circle that, you know, is just easier to draw in there or some kind of performance. Because I know in, you know, with, with UI views, if you drop too many subviews into a view, you end up sort of running into performance issues there as well. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't really run into that. I mean, my my approach is, I guess, to be the naive approach of doing exactly that, dropping lot use UI views and subviews. And then I guess um, deferring that sort of optimization to if I need to. And I've yet to really run into too many circumstances where I've needed to. Um, yeah, I think I'm exactly the same. Yeah. Cool. Well, it sounds like, I, look, I, I am like you in that I do a lot of my development on my own. Um, and one of the things I'm looking forward to about the idea of talking to different developers on this podcast is is being able to get a sense of how other people do it. Because I'm constantly asking myself, um, am I doing it right? Is the way I'm doing things, does it make sense? Um, yeah, so it's it's nice to hear from how you know how other developers are approaching things, um, and it's nice to hear that other developers ask the same questions. <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly the same. I mean, in in the past, I've sort of worked at companies of you know either 15 people or 200 people or whatever, and you've always got other people who who know more than you or who know something different than you, and you can kind of wander over to the desk and you know draw something on their whiteboard and say, "What do you think of this?" But you kind of you go out and you work on your own, and then you teach yourself all this stuff, and you wonder like. 
you know, my God, have I have I missed something? Like, is there something really obvious that you know I'm doing wrong or I'm not aware of that mm. can save me like you know weeks and weeks of work? And yeah, I hope you guys find some of that out. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I, I like you, really would like to have someone else's desk that I can walk over who knows more than me and draw up this stuff and say, what, what, you know, here's how I'm going to approach it for them to kind of cross half of it out and say, did you realize you could do it like this and save yourselves, you know, hundreds of lines of code? Or, um, <laughs> I've decided that, that the way to get that is to try and post as much of the code that I write in public as possible. Um, so I'm, you know, thinking of doing more open source stuff, for example. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. In, I'm a bit scared to do that. I always have been, but. Yeah, I guess I suppose for so um, from a commercial question, you know, you you are coding with the idea of working on your own products that you then you know sell to people, uh, that old-fashioned business model. Uh, whereas I'm, I guess I'm doing client work, and so long as the clients are happy for content to be open sourced, um, then uh, there's less of a concern of someone like taking my code and rip, doing a rip-off version of it, um, you know, and taking my money away. Uh, I suppose you yeah. wouldn't particularly want me to to bring out um I don't know top pocket weather. <laughs> you know it's it's not that part that I'm scared of. I'm actually scared of putting out some of the things that we built as carbon components and then people telling me that you know they're rubbish sort of thing. I know that's probably like a well, that's probably a silly thing to worry about. But I like I said I, I work on my own. I've taught myself like most of this stuff. I'm just worried that if I put it out there, people will be like, well, this is this is kind of garbage. Like I don't know why this is here or who wrote it, but. Oh, yeah. I reckon you'd be surprised. <laughs> so it's not really trying to protect the code and, and the things that we've done. And I mean, the other thing is I often take shortcuts as well. When you know that you're not building a, a component that's going to go into 20 different apps in you know 300 different use cases, then you can kind of hard code a few things in and just make it easier for yourself. Yeah, I'm certainly guilty of that. <laughs> I think Caleb was going to weigh in. I was just going to say that I don't think anybody on the internet would have anything negative to say. People, people on the internet saying negative things. No, never, never. Uh, Actually, speaking of putting things out there, uh, Russell, I, I'm interested to hear. We, we've just been talking about uh, how to best market apps and how to put you know, like apps out there. Uh, given that you've the some of the apps that you've done are possibly far more well known than any of the stuff that that we've we've done um i'm interested to hear how like what you do to prepare to market your app uh, uh your apps when they before they go out yeah so that's that's definitely changed over time so four years ago when we put out the first pocket weather uh, there was no marketing there was i think 300 apps in the store and somehow we magically got to number one i guess because we were the only australian weather app in in the whole of australia but you know fast forward four years later and it's, it's quite different so we actually tried this with the most recent launch that we did and it, it seemed to work. So what, what we actually did is maybe about three months before launch when we, we kind of had a, a lot of our app together, but, you know, bits weren't finished and, you know, there was still some polish left. We actually contacted a lot of um, uh, different sites, sort of different well-known people on, you know, on the internet that run, you know, blogs and podcasts and whatever. And we said, hey, look, we're working on, you know, version four and this is the kind of stuff it's, it's got in it. You know, would you be happy to kind of jump in and help us beta test you know you give us ideas give us feedback and and that worked really well two ways like one is they got involved and they they gave us good feedback they found bugs they suggested features they did all sorts of things but it it kind of also got them invested in the actual launch of our product so by the time it came time it came to release sort of version four of this app they they all had articles sort of written ready to go they you know they all had write-ups they they i guess they felt like they contributed to it and then they wanted to talk about it when it came out i don't know if that sounds like sort of 
you know going too far down the marketing end, but that that works insanely well and i think some people assume that you have to be well known for that to work but i just found that you know you write some of these people just really short kind of nice emails to say hey look this is who i am this is what we're building are you interested in in sort of helping us out and i mean the worst they can say to you is no and pretty much everyone be contacted you know down to some sort of you know minor internet celebrities all said yes so that was pretty cool so come on you you, you are well known right you're famous you you like you and Steve in Jobs Australia. used to have like regular, you know, <laughs> email conversations. Gruber links to you all the time. I mean, let's face it, like no one's even Gruber is really only an internet celebrity. But no, I'm nowhere near that. It's it, when we, when our company steps outside of Australia, pretty much no one has ever heard of us, knows who we are. I mean, everyone in the US calls us Shift Jelly. They always leave the the why off. I haven't figured out why yet. It's a it's a mystery, but ninety percent of the time, if someone in the US covers us, that's what they call us, and they've they've all never heard of us. In fact, I think when the guy wrote that article in the Verge, his thing was like, um, you know, the best podcast to come from the most unexpected place, basically, which is like, hey, I've never heard of Shoot to Jelly. Yeah, they don't develop software in Australia, do they? I thought they just did sheep and <laughs> coal and things like that. Indeed. Hey, from our resident uh, uh, US member of the uh, of the couch, can you explain to Russell why people call his company Shift Jelly? Yeah, we discussed this on Twitter, and uh, I couldn't come up with a theory. Still can't. There you go. Did you ever get to the bottom of it, Russell? No. So everyone I've contacted always says, oh, I'm sorry, I'll put the Y on the end. But they can never explain why. They, like when Gruber linked to us, he called a shift jelly. When I think the, the Verge wrote their, their article initially, it was you know shift jelly. And pretty much every bit of coverage, I think Android Central did it as well. And I I've, I asked all of them, you know, I mean, the closest I can figure out is over there they call, like manual cars are called shift stick. Is that right, Caleb? You can probably correct me on this. Yeah, shift stick sounds right. So maybe, I don't know, shift. And shift over there, jelly is um is what we would call jam here. So uh, yeah. for our US listeners. But we, we have je- jelly as well. Which you, what do you call jelly? Jelly is jelly is jello over no, in no, no. Jelly is like jelly without the seeds in it. It's like clear well, it's, jam. It's, it's yeah, it's like jam, but it has no seeds in it. But then, what we call jelly over there, you call jello. Is jello, jello, yeah, yeah. That's correct. So you should really call yourself Shift Jello, <laughs> if you wanted people in the US to understand you. Or you could just continue yeah. being misunderstood. Yeah, I don't mind it so much. In fact, I think the other day we even bought shiftjelly.com. We haven't done anything with it, but it's it's now belongs to us. Oh, excellent. What is the genesis of your name, may I ask? <laughs> it's funny you should ask because um so the history of jelly i won't i won't bore you guys too much but it started four years ago when um myself and philip like the guy i work with the we were at another company and we really wanted to to build this weather app and we're like you know what, what the hell do we call ourselves and we thought we never want to go back to being corporate enterprise java developers so we have to come up with some basically some stupid name that no one's ever going to be able to you know bring to their boss and say We'd really like to outsource the internet, blah blah blah, to Shifty Jelly because that would never work. And that's, I think that's how that name came up. And then the designer that was working with us at the time came up with the the little jelly man with the shifty eyes, and we thought that's it. We have to call ourselves Shifty Jelly. I love that idea. So you actually picked a name with the express purpose of trying to make it sound unappealing to potential enterprise clients. Exactly. That, that was yeah. the original genesis of it. Excellent. How, how's that working for you? It doesn't work at all. We still get all sorts of enterprise. You, st- you still get propositions <laughs> from enterprise clients all the time. Yep. So yeah, we okay. we failed in that respect. Ultimate fail. Oh, there you go. 
Oh, look, it's been um, it's been great having you on the show. Um, thank you for kicking off this uh, sort of developer interview segment. Uh, and look, I hope we can get other developers on to answer some of the questions you're keen to hear about in the future as well. So, Russell, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, the best way to get in touch with me is not to, but if you really have to, I'm Rusty Shelf on the Twitters and the same on whatever that other thing is. Excellent. Well, guys, if you want to read any of the show notes that we have prepared for you uh, in this episode, you can do that. Uh, just jump onto the website, uh, mobilecouch.co forward slash four. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can contact us via email on the website as well. That's mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with uh, any of us regular mobile couches, then you can do that as well. Uh, Jake is J McMullen. Uh, that's J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-N. Caleb is Thurston. That's T-H-R-S-N. And I... I'm at Jelly Bean Soup. Thanks, guys, for listening. This has been a great episode of Mobile Couch. We look forward to next time.